That was the uh, long intro, and so I was cutting you off there, Sammy. I did not have any, I thought I had it lined up on the right one, but I had it lined up on background. So I, I didn't quickly try to find the intro. So. Anyway, we're live. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, I'm glad to be back on. Um, and this is my third appearance on your show, and I really appreciate every time you have me on. No problem, man. It's a lot of fun. I like talking to smart people, and so it's easy. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, Sammy, this is your uh, first time here. Well, first time yeah, my first podcast. time, first time here. Probably first live appearance anywhere, nice, honestly. Nice. So, so tell me, tell, tell my audience a little bit before we, before we go live. Let's do some intros. Uh, Sammy, tell my audience a bit about yourself. Um, so I'm from New Jersey. Uh, I am a college student. I'm in majoring in finance, but uh, my interests are like finance and economics. Uh, I got into all this stuff through. I think reading liberalism by Mises, honestly, like uh, I was trying to um, learn about like classical liberalism. Uh, that was a while ago. <laughs> and down the rabbit hole, uh, I went to Mises University uh, 2021. And that kind of got me more into this stuff. And I've just been like, I don't know, just learning, delving into this stuff. I went from like the traditional path, Mises, Rothbard, Hoppa. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, you've been on here several times, but go ahead and just one more time for anybody who might be listening. What's your intro, man? Yeah. So, uh, I'm Peyton. Uh, that's my real name, but uh, I'm also Repeal the 20th Century. Uh, you can find me at Repeal the 20th on Twitter and just looking up Repeal the 20th Century on YouTube, Spotify, Odyssey, Anchor, um, and Substack. Um, Besides Repeal the 20th Century, I'm also somebody who's contributed to uh, both the Mises Institute and the Libertarian Institute, been published a few times by them. Nice. Um, and besides that, I'm a liberty activist, um, and I also work in the New York State Assembly um, currently, uh, though unfortunately I can't talk about that on on shows. But <laughs> I understand. Uh, will you be able to when you're done? Like when you're done, will you be able to? Or is it kind of like forever thing? So yeah, I can I can talk about it um, once I'm done with it. So you know, keep an eye out for that stuff. Um, I'm looking forward to that. So okay, then let's get into the book. I just I tweeted out the link. If anybody else wants to tweet out a link, now's the chance to do it. Um, so we're talking about I. Put on the self, I forgot to bring it back down. But economy, society, and history by Hans Selman Hoppe. It was a lecture series that he gave, and that was a now it's a book. And I gotta say, it's a pretty good book. I I really enjoyed it. What did you guys think of the book? Uh, well, I thought it was a really great book too. Um, I think it's a very good intro piece actually into a lot of Hoppe's work because um, it's shorter compared to a lot of his other books. Um, and also is all encompassing. Um, it delves deep enough, I think, as like an intro into basically every idea that Hoppe has or expands on of other people's mm -hmm. ideas, um, especially with Mises and Rothbard, um, and does it in a way that I think is very accessible. And I, I think that's very important. Absolutely. Sammy, what about you? What did you think? Yeah, I agree. I think it was my third book I read of Hoppe after Democracy and uh, the Ethics of Private Property. Um, 
I agree. I, I really like the structure of like 10 chapters that all connect. Um, there's like one of the chapters is basically like a, a TLDR of Democracy the God that failed. So kind of get a little bit of everything. And uh, I especially like the, I think the first few chapters because I think that's the most unique stuff to this book. Um, so yeah, it's great. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I actually did not read the book. I watched the lectures on YouTube because I am I, I don't like reading. <laughs> um, if I can if I can listen or watch, that's my go-to. And so I, I listen to the lecture series. Um, and that's how accessible it is in very listening. Like if you don't like reading, the lecture series is on YouTube. It's very accessible. The only thing I think you get different is it's a uh, no. I don't think you get the questions in the book, and um, the, so you can see the thoughts because the lecture series is a CD thing, so you don't have any visuals. But you get the thoughts in the book, and so you actually. So there's a bit of difference there, but mm-hmm. having a book on you, having a book with you while you watch the next series, kind of flip to and go, oh, that's the, that's the sorry, it's kind of helpful. Yeah, I I have to agree with that. I wanted to bring that up actually because um, it kind of reminds me a lot of uh, I think the book is Property and Freedom or something like that, um, mm-hmm. which is just also a compilation of lectures from Property and Freedom Society, which is uh, Hoppe's own project. And, um, yeah, you, you can watch all the lectures that are in this book online. Um, but what you're missing, if you don't also have, um, like a physical copy of the book, I have a physical copy here, uh, which I got at the Mises Institute, um, at Mises university 2021 as well, um, is you're missing the, the sourcing, uh, but not just that you're missing, um, the preface and forward, which I actually think are also really great. Um, they explain the motivation for why this book was published, which is a very good motivation and, you know, in all encompassing more right wing view on libertarianism and the need for embracing the fact that libertarianism is a right wing ideology and how important that is to achieving our goals. Um, and I think the preface does a really good job of explaining that and convincing you if you weren't already convinced by that. I'll have to check it out because I, I didn't. I don't think I read that part. <laughs> That's the lecture series. Um, uh, anyone listening, the, the, the in the description now is a link to the lecture series on YouTube and a link to the, buying the book on Mises on Mises Institute. And so, if you're gonna buy it, then now's the time to go, go there, pick it up. Also, make a donation. Uh, so yeah, Sammy, uh, what about you? Anything you want to add to what we just said about the whole? Uh, as we just said. Yeah, I read the the book. I I'm trying to remember. I think it is it Sean Gab that does the forward. I remember liking the forward. Uh, yeah, I believe it is Sean Gab. I'll check real quick for you. So way we know for sure. Um, yes, it's on this page. Yeah, Sean Gab is the one who yeah, did it. I think he also does the forward for getting libertarianism right, yep. which is another really good forward. It's a great one. Yeah, I have to agree with that as well. He just um, followed me on Twitter. I'm gonna try to get him on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, um. The foreword in that book is also great, and that book's also another good example of um, a shorter Hoppe text that's kind of all-encompassing, though it is a little more focused, than I would say, than this one in what it's trying to tackle and delve deep into, um, which is, you know, libertarianism as a right-wing ideology. Absolutely. So let's go through this. I think what we'll do is I'm going to read off um, the title of the first lecture, and we'll go through each and what kind of comment we liked about what we learned, what kind of covers, and Kind of discuss from there. So the first lecture was the nature of man and the human condition. So anyone listen, he just started off. He basically is reconstructing human history uh, with an like, economic and political lens. So it's very interesting. If anybody listening, like, if you like history and you want to kind of get the basics of it all, this is a very good book, I think. Um, 
So the first left, so native man, human condition. What do you guys think of the first lecture? Or first chapter, I guess. Yeah, so what stuck out to me in the first lecture is um, particularly something he does in the second lecture and what the second lecture is really a lot about, which is pointing out about division of labor and how important that is and how it is like a kind of a bedrock of what made civilization. Um, so, you know, he explains the history of humanity really under an economic lens and how we went from um, kind of fulfilling every role that we can imagine um, in early hunter gatherer societies and stuff um, because there was no specialization and there was no division of labor and it was only until we realized that if we focus pursuits into what a human being is most inclined and, and is best at, mm -hmm. um, did we create civilization and have that? And that really we got complex languages, we got property itself and all these other things. And that um, before then we saw, you know, it in a more primal form that wasn't as productive or, or um, did not have the ability of creating the things that it did once we had that division of labor and civilization really came about. I, I enjoyed the part when he brought up how um, he brought up game theory, the game theory people who don't know how human beings develop, like they question how human beings develop, like out of competition, competition, like how does that work with game theory? And, uh, he explained it's division of labor, how it's like, well, it may, it's beneficial not to, you know, kill everybody next to you. I like, got a competition to work together. And then they also, I said the point about how language form, language came about when the, the evolution of language to describe abstract things and like, I own this kind of thing really led to the division, creation of property, property and everything else. I thought it was really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. And, you know, um, I think Hoppe does a really good job of explaining history in general. I mean, uh, the first text I read of his, which is the first text of most people, Democracy, the God That Failed, is really just like a history lesson of, um, or, or a good portion of it is a history lesson of the organization of, of governments and the state over time. And then uh, there's a reason why he extracted basically entire chapters of the book into and was able to make it into its own history book, that being um, aristocracy to monarchy to democracy. Yep. And um, I think he does a really good job here and is able to go even further than back than democracy and, and um, ever did. Yeah. And I think that brings sheds a light on a on an area that is often not covered enough or covered in a way uh that makes people inclined to more like left-wing thought about it yeah something that stands out to me um just of hoppe in general is his ability to like apply his theoretical knowledge to history i think that's one thing he says is that oh historians like are good at like recording the facts but they're often really bad on history and left wing and mm -hmm. without a way to interpret things like like I, I think Rothbard said it that you can't like history can't be um, done without a theory because otherwise you're just going to be recording like random facts and you don't know mm -hmm. what to focus on unless you have a like a framework so it is interesting to see Hoppe's framework of like his economics, his like political philosophy, like kind of using that lens to um, 
interpret like how mankind developed mm -hmm. through yeah. like property language division of labor all those things i haven't i haven't i read all of a theory and history by mises but i read the i read the, the introduction to the chapter it just seemed like it was that that book what kind of what it says what you learned that book applied to actually reconstructing history like hopper, hopper does it so if anyone wants to hear more about you know you can't just read history you have to like reconstruct history kind of saying or you need theory for history i'd say theory and history by mises but the introduction by ross Bart is probably the best thing you can read on that like that's a really good introduction yeah, I, I think it's interesting you brought that up, point up about history and, and needing a lens to view it, especially because Rothbard himself would call himself um, a s historical revisionist. And because he was very much against the common narratives on most history, which are actually wrong. I mean, especially if we look at um, just looking at early human history, pre-civilization history, I mean, the, the common narrative of it is that, um, oh, the reason why we didn't, uh, we, we were hunter-gatherer tribes and very savage and all of this is because we weren't evolutionary developed enough or we weren't, um, we didn't have the blessings of, of like liberal thought or something like that. Those are answers I see all the time of, of why. And um, while the evolutionary one, you know, there's some credit to that. Um, it is really because we didn't have a well uh, thought out division of labor. We didn't. That's what brought civilization was that division of labor of saying some people are better at other th these things and other people are better at other things. And we did have a crude kind of division of labor in that was created from genetics because we see division of labor in other species even um but not as complex as down to you do this task and uh mostly just this task and you use your resources your property to create more productive ends um that being in goods and services and as we know it but we saw that, you know, with the, the role of the mother and the father uh, in the biological sense that mothers, human mothers, even in hunter-gatherer societies and pre-civilization, were the ones that were nurturers and protectors of the um, home. And men, the fathers, were the ones who went and out and hunted and gathered or are not always gathered because there would be women who gathered too. Um, but it was always usually close to wherever the, the docile was. Um, but, and so I think it is good that Hoppe points that out, that it, the division of a complex division of labor is the reason why we have civilization and not these other reasons that like left wingers like to try to say is the reason we have civilization and what, holds down civilization and what's uh funny to me is that like the division of labor i mean it really comes down to inequality so it's like the whole foundation of everything <laughs> is anti-egalitarian in, in in nature mm -hmm. like so it, it's yeah. just funny to me he um i mean mises also said that the two reasons for the division of labor being true is uh inequalities between man and inequalities of like geography like mm -hmm. so that's like the basis mm -hmm. for everything yeah yeah well and um i was actually talking about this in a episode i just recorded with um 
uh, Germinal uh, Van, who is a self-taught economist who's been published with the Mises Institute a few times. And um, he's from Africa. And we were talking about uh, the common narrative that the reason why Africa is poor is because, you know, the lack of resources or colonialism or whatever these reasons mm -hmm. are. Um, but, you know, we pointed out that the, the, the real reason is the, the attitude, the cultural attitudes that exist and the geographical um, inequality in the sense that, you know, uh, Africans on the whole culturally were uh, or have these attitudes of non uh, I'm trying to find a really good way to phrase this without getting canceled. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 moment he said African, I was like, he better be careful. He's coming. yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, have these attitudes that are contrary to the division of labor. Um, you know, as he says, it, they're very distracted. They get very distracted very easily, and they tend to put themselves into more of a entertainment route with job prospects rather than productive ones. Um, ones where they might actually be better than the entertainment route. Um, something he said that I th thought was funny was like Africans would be uh, insanely rich if what created wealth of nations was soccer. <laughs> like that, like, you know. The point about you're getting to the point here. Kind of, um, we, we got to chapter five was like the ideology, religion, and biology and yeah. environment. Like this is a. That was like, I think that was my favorite chapter, actually, when he went to different religions and ideologies and how they um, – that, that was really interesting. Also, he said some really – being Catholic, he said some really great things, in my opinion. Um, I was listening – I was, like, playing a video game half listening. I'm like, help us Catholic, pal. Let's get into that. I was just <laughs> listening to some of that because that was, um, that was really interesting. But so chapter one, I think that was like, the most interesting chapter, honestly. Chapter one, chapter five was probably most interesting because that was um really – Going to the base of how civilization built, how we kind of these norms that we have to kind of get along, division of labor, property came about was really, and it's interesting. Let's get to chapter two. Uh, how human? This is what I didn't really pay too much attention to. Um, spread of humans around the world. Maybe y'all want to talk more about that one because that one I kind of yeah, geography I, is not my strong suit. I have certain ideas. I just kind of doze off. So if you could. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I mean, it plays into the division of labor. He, I mean, he's talking about like different societies and how they like wane, like grow and shrink. Um, so it's interesting to me that he's kind of bringing up the point that you kind of need a certain population density before um, the division of labor can, I'm going to try to stop just saying that over and over, but um, <laughs> before it can take uh, place. Um, and one example that stood out to me is there's like archeological evidence of societies that used boats to travel to an island. But when that um, society was rediscovered hundreds of years later, they had lost the ability to create boats. So um, it's kind of like once a society like is shut off from the rest of the world, they kind of have to just like revert back to more primitive methods because they can't sustain like a sophisticated uh, society, which is like a small amount of people. And that kind of also plays into I forget what chapter he's talking about, like the, the growth of cities and house that large populations were able to support like new professions that n never existed before and that's kind of how we had like science and medicine mm -hmm. all start yeah uh another thing that uh hoppa briefly mentions and then also um in self-promoting again uh that podcast 
that I just recorded with um, Germano was also talking about is that, um, you know, a big part of it is the transmutation of knowledge and knowledge being passed on to the next generation. And um, Germano put it, and Hoppe also sort of puts it, is that Africa for most of its history did not have much of this. There was not a lot of emphasis placed on the retention of knowledge, um, especially in their tribal, a lot of tribal societies and passing on the knowledge that was gained uh, by previous generations. So it could be used and developed on to continue um, increasing their pursuits. And so this is a, a, the specific example of, um, civilizations that knew how to create boats and then went to islands and forgot it it's a really good example of that of how like there was a lot of that going on in early civilization and still is unfortunately in several parts of the world um and that's why we see some cultures and some nations lagging behind uh is because they don't have that knowledge pass on that's a big part of the division of labor and continuing to divide out the roles of people um so specialization can happen yeah it seems like it seems a weird thing to um people who would how to put this people who wouldn't necessarily i, I can think of people who you would say that to that people you would say people forgot how to build boats forgot how to build bow and arrows i forgot kind of thing people would say that doesn't make any sense people who would say i probably hold to the wig here of history it seems like it's getting better and better and better they don't understand. No, you can forget things. And an easier example is um, if a, a lot of people can die and fix a car, they can't fix the car. They're not learning anything. This is a very small example, but it's an example of people not learning what the parents before them knew and your ancestors knew. It happens now. It happened then. It's a normal saying. I don't see why people get so weird about. No, that, that's what I, I, I saw somebody say. It was racist that um, one uh, Native Americans did have wheels or something. They, had, they didn't have a wheel. They were going around and uh, and they were like, that's racist. I'm like, no, that's, that's factual. That happened. They didn't know how to do that. I don't know how you can say that's a, a racist statement, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think a big marker of, of whether or not a tribal society will turn into um, a more civilized society one that has you know grows into the empires and and nation states that we see now um and have saw throughout history and have been the most prosperous is that are is there a passing on of the knowledge of previous generations and a lot of these tribal cultures that are still very tribal today or um, were tribal for long periods of time. Yeah, you didn't see that. So I think um, a really good example of this is uh, the transition of the Mongols from just a tribe to an empire is mm-hmm. that when um, the Mongols began passing on the ways of war onto uh, ne- the next generation after a few mm-hmm successful conquests that's when they became an empire because they were able to amass the ways of war of other of other um cultures and then also their own they didn't lose their own ways of war after you know all their warriors died they could Mm -hmm. still go on and train the next generation to be just as efficient fighters and even more efficient and um I can't remember if Hoppe brings up Mongols in his. I, I don't think so, but um, 
that that is a good example that stuck out to me while reading um yeah passing on information and i mean that's like a pretty low time preference behavior mm -hmm. of saving stuff and just recording it just for the future um mm -hmm. so i guess the question is i mean a lot of what makes a society uh, successful is time preference so i guess like mm -hmm. the factors that influence it are very important and obviously that's discussed a lot in democracy so yeah um i was going to mention something about how uh religions are really good about that but i think i'll save that when we talk about chapter, chapter five, five. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, the next the next three chapters are the ones i'm actually really excited about is uh the next chapter was money and monetary integration um this is this is actually where I, my favorite thing economic topic is anything involving money like means mm -hmm. is a series of money and credits what is given into our money it, my money mechanics about money those are the, my favorite ones anything involving money just like it's so much fun um so what do you guys think of the chapter money and monetary integration so i will say that this is one of the chapters in which uh my interest peaked probably the least not because i thought it was bad or anything um i still think it's great but more or so that i've read so much on monetary and i've never been a huge fan of monetary policy and in theory and um i'm just not a big fan of it personally but i think hoppa does a really good job of um explaining and building upon uh, both Mises and Rothbard's ideas of money, um, global trade, and uh, kind of also explaining the growth of cities, which I think goes back to something Sammy said about uh, population density in the previous chapter and how like division of labor becoming complex was a thing we saw at a certain population density. And even more so as civilizations got more and more dense. Yeah, I think I think I've like two things from this chapter. One interesting thing, um, I know uh, Hoppe brings up this point a lot that like when you don't have currencies tied to a like a gold standard, you're basically in a system of partial barter. So he has a quote that's like international division of labor peaked in 1914. Um, so that's an interesting thing that I mean that kind of goes with the repeal of the 20th century. There's just <laughs> yeah. been a constant decline since since uh woodrow wilson and world war one and all that um so that 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 was interesting basically like he um like almost he would view that we're like declining in the division of labor since then which obviously isn't a great thing for society um and then another thing that hoppa mentions mises um like with the division of labor basically that because of the division of labor there's like an incentive for people to cooperate even if they don't like each other um and I forget, I think this is in either liberalism. Yeah, I think it's in liberalism. Um, Mises says that sympathy results from, but is not the cause of the division of labor. So that, that was an interesting thing of like, you can like hate your neighbor or hate your the people, but trade with them. And then maybe from trading with them, you'll eventually start liking them. Um, so I know Mises thought of uh, trade as like the like apparatus of social cooperation and all that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good point that you bring that up um, because I'm glad Hoppe expands on it too. Because that idea kind of comes from, or at least the first time, the farthest back that I can think of off the top of my head about somebody kind of doing that is Bastiat, uh, or sorry, not Bastiat, uh, David Ricardo in his theory of trade and um, kind of the the idea that 
basically you are creating a common goal and a, a mutually beneficial relationship in trade and that will decrease the likelihood of conflict so obviously you're still going to have conflict because not only is it human but in trade there's conflicts over well i value this um this amount and you value that this amount and those values are not always the same and they kind of have to kind of reach a point where you're both willing to say you agree on a, a certain value point for trade to happen. But when that trade is happening, when you do have that relationship, what you see is a likely more likelihood of peace and cooperation. Um, if we want to ham fist a connection to now, uh, if you look at Ukraine and Russia and really the West in general, post the collapse of the Soviet union, you know, there was the opportunity, Hey, the Soviet union's, fallen we can engage in trade now with them and and feel comfortable in that trade but we didn't do that instead we continued sanctions we continued embargoes um i i'm pretty sure there are still embargoes and sanctions in place on russia that started in the soviet union um and then we also encouraged ukraine to engage in that behavior and such, we saw a, a dividing of, a, of two peoples who were very similar, had very similar goals, especially in the geopolitical arena. Um, and a, a lot of that happened because there was that lack of trade. And really, um, Hoppe does a good, um, good piece about saying how trade, even between peoples who hate each other, does a lot in preventing conflict between them because it provides kind of it provides another outlet besides war for conflict to happen that is actually in the long run more beneficial because it creates new economic opportunities and opportunities for production um like i think a good thing would be if actually engage us engaging in a economic war with china that was fought in the market would probably end up doing us more good because we would have incentive to develop um, more robust industries and, and recession-proof industries uh, to to combat Chinese the China in the market, yeah. uh, but instead we you know throw tariffs, we uh, sanction, we uh, embargo, and we really limit our domestic ability to produce uh, with regulation and taxation on production. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, I forget what book Mises says it in, but he's like, some people criticize capitalism because it's competition, but he's like, well, it's competition of building things up, whereas war is competition of destroying things. So it's like, which one would you rather have people competing over, like making people better off or just like killing people? Yeah. And, you know, it, it is it is trade. Really, what it is at the end of the day is is um, competition in production and it's a sort of it ends up being a sort of war of of goods of who can meet pref or um who can meet demands best yeah and um who is really just the best society at producing mm -hmm. and um you know and i think hoppa does a good way of a, a good job of establishing that and and providing a lot of historical examples um in doing so and also building upon mises and stuff i mean he actually quotes 
Mises on um, trade being almost an extension of like Darwinism um, and the idea of natural selection. We gotta get, we gotta get moving because we're thirty minutes in and we're only three chapters in. Um, <laughs> next chapter: time preference, capital, technology, and economic growth. So, uh, time preference is probably gonna be a topic a lot of you you guys both want to talk a lot about. So, what do you guys think of this chapter? So, uh, again, this is a really good one where he um, stresses the importance of of knowledge um, transfer over generations um and as we said earlier demonstrates how it's a low time preference uh, low time preference action and how that contributes to economic growth and um he does he does a good job of demonstrating um you know the it in a robin and crusoean economy for most of the chapter which i think Ro- the robin crusoe example is those are always my favorite economic. examples yeah like, yeah it's one of the that comes up in anything examples. it clicks like I, I didn't actually understand anything economic when i was reading until i heard i heard once i heard that it all kind of clicked i'm like oh now i can read and i started reading more music like, i didn't understand it now i get like, i can refer back to that analogy that and the uh, the master builder one those are probably two of the best ways to explain anything uh economic wise tell me what you think of this chapter yeah um from this one i mean i had some notes on factors of time preference so um i mean three things that he mentions for leading to a lower time preference is stability order and security of property Real quick, maybe uh, we, maybe we should define time preference for anybody who doesn't I, know where it is yet. Uh, let's kind of, let's try to find that real quick. Who wants to go forward for that? I, one? I could try. I'll try. I'll try. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's the phenomenon that you will always prefer the same good, all else equal, now than in the future because the future is uncertain, and if you want it, you just want it now. Um, I'm kind of bad at that reasoning for that, but just, okay. Um, but the degree to which you value the present to the future uh, can differ, and that is considered your time preference. So a high time preference would be your preference for something right now is a lot higher than something in the future. So you're impatient. So you take uh, 10 bucks now rather than waiting a year to get $100, whereas someone with a higher or a lower time preference, um, like the difference in value between now and the future, they're, they're closer to being equal. So you could be like, well, I have a low time preference. I care about my future. Therefore, I'll take $110 um, one year from now rather than $100 now. And I mean, that's how like interest rates and everything mm-hmm. is formed in an economy. So it's super uh, pivotal. And also, uh, other than economically, it's also super important socially for the behavior. Like a lot of bad, what we think of antisocial or bad behavior, if um, doesn't really make sense from a long-term perspective like uh like petty crimes but if you have a higher time preference and you really want something now then you're more likely to engage in behavior like that so it's just very important um is that is that good enough you think works for me um, uh, so we'll, we'll, before, before we go forward i think i have a if i can find it i want to make sure i have a quote here like well i can't seem to find it because it's not on my feed anymore for some reason um oh dang i was gonna i thought i had an example it was of a diet pretty much a time preference like eating donuts is a 
low time preference or oh, I mess it up. High time, I always get it. Confused. I always yeah, I always my get it. My bio had the wrong one for like a month. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. Um, I think my bio actually has a reference to time preference. Let me see if it still does. Yeah, I'm gonna click that. Make yeah, sure it I get says low time uh, preference individual. Okay. <laughs> low time preference is the good one. High time preference is the bad one. I was, we're not going back. Well, you can't like, make uh, judgment. Yeah, yeah. I have to. I always. I, well, for me, I gotta preference that because. Uh, okay, forget forget the analogies. I can't find, so we're just gonna move on. Um, back to yeah. what you're saying about the benefits of time preference. Who wants to? Well, who was saying that? Was Sammy? Uh, yeah, I'll yeah. Ju I, just a tiny bit. Um, so. Uh, stability and order and security of your property are super important for time preference because if you're not sure what's going to happen one year from now, you're not going to value that. Like say, like, I mean, it's very relevant right now. I'm kind of like freaking out about the whole like economic system right now. Um, like money being seized, like just like blocking bank accounts, all that. It's yeah. like, I don't know, like, if you don't know what's going to happen to your money one year from now, you're going to just spend it right now. Like, you're not mm -hmm. thinking about the future because it's so uncertain. Mm -hmm. And that that's what happens in hyperinflation is people get so uncertain about the future that they just spend everything right now. And that just self-perpetuates the hyperinflation. Um, mm -hmm. And that's often how you see economies or societies collapsing is when time preference suddenly skyrockets because of all this uncertainty. Um and like loss of stability. So that's why like order is very important for a functioning society. Yeah. I I was I'm was reminded um on this subject that uh Hoppe goes into it a little bit about interest rates in regard to time preference and how um he actually has a graph historically how interest rates have um lowered over time and historically the, the long-term interest rate has been lower and uh, also brings that up how really this has encouraged even more and more high time preference behavior because um, with a low interest rate there's more incentive to take out loans to spend money um, there's more liquidity essentially uh, in the market and you spend have the incentive to spend, 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 and that creates high time preferences. And then, but also with low interest rates, um, artificially low interest rates in this case, uh, you have a dis it's de-incentivized to save because you don't get as much gain from it um, to save because one inflation is increasing uh, and two, banks, you know, the, the interest rate on saving is when it's low, there's less of a gain to saving in general. You don't you don't gain as much from saving. Your money doesn't increase as much. Um, your investments don't increase in much. So there's a lot. It's like disincentivizing production in saving, but incentivizing consumption, especially of certain goods of which his student Hoisman, who I think is also really great and doesn't get enough attention, um, lays out in ethics of money production is really the, the reason we see the cultural decay we do, why we see degeneracy and all that is really, um, and both Hoppe and Hoisman do this is define mm -hmm. that like any definition of degeneracy that does not include time preference is ultimately useless. There is yeah. no systemization of the degeneracy, besides 
the theological one, of course, um, then time preference. But really, I would argue that the sin and time or pre- uh, high time preference are both correlated and causated. I, I know I probably shouldn't be doing this right now, but I got to ask. Uh, I'm, I'm reading the book now as the money production. I need a guest for the book club. Uh, Peyton, would you be down for that? Yeah, yeah, I would actually. Uh, that is now eighteen books. My that's not nineteen books on my reading list, <laughs> oh, but uh, doesn't matter. I'm looking forward to that one because I, I really that's been I, I. Yeah, that's a good book. Not, not, I don't like reading, as I said earlier, but there are very few books that once I start reading, them, I can't put them down. That one and uh, Search in the Market by Tom Woods. Those are the books I can actually sit and read because they're so good and easy to read. Mm-hmm. So, anyone have anything to add to time preference, capital, technology, technology, and economic growth? If we move on to the next one. Uh, yeah, I think we can move on to the next yeah, one. Yeah. Okay. The Wealth of Nations, Ideology, Religion, Biology, and Environment. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a chapter I think was probably my favorite chapter. He goes through different ideologies and religions and the effects they have on how people work, economics, capital. Um, I can't remember. Do you remember he, if he labeled Confucianism an ideology or religion? Because I, I remember he talked about people who labeled either one. I can't remember which one he labeled it, though. They won't have a note on that one because I yeah I don't I have to write it down while I was driving. But I do actually have a lot of notes on or well internal notes about his commentary on both um, orthodoxy and Catholicism. And I'm really glad you brought up Tom Wood's book about uh, the church and state, because or uh, the church in the market. Uh, yeah, the church in the market uh, because. A reason uh, for why we see Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Christianity in general at the pinnacle of a lot of human uh, development and and growth and uh, advancement uh, in civilization is because those uh, Christian religions, particularly Orthodoxy and Catholicism, are really good about the transmutation of information because they have an entire um, group dedicated to that, being monastics. That is all monastics do, is record and preserve information. And um, all of their, their, their time is dedicated to theological intellectual pursuits. Um, Someone you've had on before, and I, all of us know uh, Marcel uh, Goutreau, has a really good theory on why the Catholic Church is uh, how it is. And and that is that the Catholic Church was really at the height of um, civilization, particularly in the West, because it was taking in all the autistic um, sons of you know people because you know in that time if you had an autistic son he can't get married there's nothing else you can do but send him into the priesthood send him into the monastic order and so that's what they did and so you had a high concentration of high iq individuals who were able to just read all day and and create new things and do all these things um and then we saw beginning of a decline in the catholic church and um i i connect it with the the protestant reformation but i don't think marcel does as much uh is when it became more accessible for neurotypical people to be members of society and functioning members and get married and everything um what was left 
were the other kind of sons you would send into monastic orders, and that being gay sons. And because they wouldn't get married either for obvious reasons, and they were shunned from society and being a normal person of society. So that's what's left in the monastic order and the, the priesthood of the Catholic Church as now they can divert themselves into business and stuff and honestly have a better standard of living in uh, materially at least. Um, and so yeah. – yeah, I think Hoppe does a good job of establishing that with the Catholic, uh, Catholic Church and Orthodox Church. And there's, their... there's definitely something that's time that's a low time preference about, I would say, the I don't know how, how do how do you want to classify the difference the distinction between Protestantism and the Orthodox and Catholic distinction? Like, do you want to say apostolic apostolic churches? Because I mean, there's some apostolic think... stuff in uh, Anglican Lutheranism, so I don't know how to. Really I think it's, it's mostly that the the, the importance of the monastic order and um clergy in general uh that that differentiates it in the organization of clergy so yeah. luther lutheran is a example of a protestant that i or protestant denomination that i would say overall has a lower time preference than other ones yeah. because it also has that to some extent it's a very lesser extent mm -hmm. than catholicism or orthodoxy but it still does yeah. um oh, papa mentions that when he talks about protestantism mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that um, you know the more ordered that a Protestant sect is, and the older it is too, the more the lower the time preference of those individuals tends to be. Like, I'd say fasting, uh, Lent, these kind of activities are definitely a part of a low time preference. Uh, I guess culture, you would say, and this kind of religions. Um, now I would, I say, and I would say there's a. This is actually what. The whole point about having Siri, but I keep saying Siri when you read history, like understanding how religion motivates people, and when you understand, like, I hope you understand a lot of like the uh, early America, the uh, pilgrims, and it's really when you look back at how history, history works and stuff, and understanding religion is really because religion motivates a lot of people's actions, and I think a lot of history doesn't really account for that as well as it should. It a lot of historians don't account for the religious motivations that a lot of people have. Well, I think there's a there's a a very specific reason for this and Hoppe has touched on it before and that is because the establishing order especially in education is very anti-religious is mm -hmm. um it wants to downplay religion's role in society so I, a really good example of this is i can remember when i took ap world history in high school mm -hmm. and we talked about orthodoxy and literally all that was said by my teacher about orthodoxy is that they're Christians that worship pictures. <laughs> and I was like, at the time I was like, that doesn't seem really right, but okay. Um, and you know, now looking back at it, I'm like, how, how, how did she get away with saying this? And, you know, I, I'm um, going to tweet that now. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Is, um, uh, but you know, and so the the establishing order wants to downplay this, and and Hoppe points out that, that this is ideological, and that if you really want to um, go after the things that made our civilization great, the things that create production and productive efforts, uh, religion is definitely one of those things. Mm -hmm. And there is a reason, and most people don't realize this, that. Um, Marx talks about religion so much and is so critical of it because mm -hmm. he recognizes that it is a important institution in 
making free markets and capitalism as effective as it is and also that um it it plays a role in uh i don't want to say individualizing society but like it puts them in a different class dynamic it at least like separates them from the state um just because yeah, that you have too. a different like power structure i mean i've read a lot about how like Europe was able to develop the way it was because the church was so powerful um, and like a uh, countering force to like the local princes and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and religion does a big thing in that um, I can say for as a Orthodox Christian as somebody, you know, we create a very community that is separate, um, not s- segregating, but separate in the sense that, you know, we have our own community and authority that we give to and the state hates um, authority that competes with theirs. Yeah. And uh, that's why it's one of its biggest targets, actually probably its second biggest target, its biggest target. And I wrote about this um, for me is the family, the family unit, um, whether that's multi-generational families or nuclear families, um, though I, I see the nuclear family as kind of a um, in, in itself an attack on the family unit unit by the state, uh, but you know, um, and it does that through education. That goes back to it. That's actually what the article is about: is how education is. Is either of you guys read uh, what a um, compulsory education or was it was it Waspot's book on education called? It was um. It's education like free, free and compulsory. compulsory. I think yeah. it's like education free and compulsory. That book, that book is not get talked about enough, in my opinion. That's a really good one. Yeah, it like, is actually one of his. It's one of his, um, like less distributed books. Yeah, so, I only like briefly saw it. No, yeah. it, it's he goes through in the book, um, how Lucio and Calvin helped create public school because <laughs> yeah. I, I remember that. I remember that. It, it was uh, actually I need to cover that one on the podcast. I was saying because that one does not get talked about. There's, a lot, there's so many Waspot books. Sometimes I forget about books he wrote. Like I completely forget about um, history of money and banking. I just completely forget about mm-hmm. education free post because there's so many. Yeah, there's great just so many books. things that just got published. Like yeah, like after his death. Yeah. Um. Did you guys? One thing I found interesting from this chapter was a bit. I mean, it's he's going through every religion basically, and I mean, he's saying how important ideological factors like that can influence how the attitude towards things such as the division of labor or capitalism, like certain mm-hmm. religions that ban interests just aren't going to do that well, or certain cultures that don't encourage, like, like think of it as greedy if you don't like share everything as soon as you mm-hmm. get it with people around you, that's not going to be like conducive for capital accumulation. Um, What's interesting, though, is he said that um, early Christianity was very similar to that as it was like collectivist and not really focusing on the material world because they were focusing on the the afterlife or like spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's interesting to me is that he think he said that Aquinas is kind of where like modern Christian view developed and which kind of viewed life on Earth as good and kind Mm -hmm. of like, I guess, grounded people in like look we have heaven to think about but we also have the earth and also i guess that's where like rationality i, I don't know i don't know much about like I would say the church other than aquinas like early church yeah. i would say early church um 
it makes sense that they would be like that because like very early steps were still hunted and killed, and so they really didn't have a lot mm-hmm. to think about. Yeah. They had to be they had to hide in they had to the caves, and they were. I guess like, it kind of forced you to not think about the moment. We have to see what other sayings and stuff like. So that's, that's my that's my explanation of why they were like that. Yeah, uh, and when you when you hide the kids and living together, you're gonna say a lot more. I think, and that's gonna be a lot more. I know people say, "Oh, this was communist." Like, no, they were just they were communal because they were in, they wanted to run. Yeah, know, I was between communists and being on the run together. So I, I I agree with what you say about that. It's actually interesting because today is the second feast day of uh, martyrs that I think explain this very well. So um, it is the feast days of the martyrs of. Um, I, pr- I forgot how to pronounce it. Um, Sa- uh, hold on, give me one second. I'm gonna, I'm going to look at this so I can actually get it right that I pronounce it correctly. Um, let's see. Yes, the Martyrs of Sebast. So the Martyrs of Sebast were forty legionaries who were outed as secret Christians uh, during a time when Christians were still very persecuted by the Roman Empire. And uh, the Roman general uh, in command of them gave them a choice, renounce Christ or die in the freezing river. Um, And so all 40 of them initially got in the river and then one decided to switch over and, 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 and renounce Christ. But a pagan was actually so inspired by it that he joined them in the river and was, uh, we say, is baptized by blood. And that he did ascend into heaven, um, but upon his death, that is. And um, I think that kind of encapsulates what's going on here, because on the surface, that's a very high time preference thing. Is is you know, um, I'd rather die now than renounce Christ and go and uh, live on. But I think that this is kind of where Hoppe. Uh, his analysis kind of fails and where I disagree with him in uh, I disagree with him a lot on the early church and I think he's kind of not recognizing that it is a low time preference actually option there because you know the belief in Christ believing in Christ um, it is that you are actually getting the the long-term pursuit of heaven and eternal life by doing such and mm-hmm. that actually they were making that decision. So I think it's, it's a thing that he's approaching it from a secular lens when you can't do that. Yeah. Um, and I, I do though agree with him that Aquinas very much shaped the modern Christianity as we know it. Um, but I don't think that's all good, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish Aquinas had honestly. So my thing that I wish Aquinas had more of an impact um, mm-hmm. because a lot of Protestants that I know don't like philosophy and get mad when they do philosophy or get mad when they try to apply what reason to face. And I think Aquinas really was the example of bringing face and reason together. I wish that was prioritized more by a lot of. There are Protestants who do that. There are great parts like William Lane Craig and um, it's I think Cooper, the Lutheran guy, Cooper, I can't remember his first name. Um, I wish that was more of a thing because there were some partisans who are very anti philosophy, anti reason, face alone, face mm-hmm. alone, but not in the like face alone, obviously in the solar way, but also face alone in the actual reason philosophy way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I went to like a Lutheran esque, like high school ish thing, and and we had to do like Aquinas and Augustine. So I, I think yeah. that's like a Lutheran thing, I guess. Um, 
what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, that that was interesting to me. The the and I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that like Hoppe is just doing an analysis of the physical end of the material. Yeah, it, we're not like it's not implying that uh, society is worse or better. Like I, I would argue that like material things are like of second importance anyway. So so that's like important to acknowledge like a society can focus on things other than material well-being this mm -hmm. is just a theoretical explanation yeah. for what societies do well materially and i mean hapa is secular but he's also just not delving into the the ethics here either so yeah i actually think hapa would agree with that too um just based on you know him being more right-wing and in and applying how important like order and these higher ideals are to society and that it isn't just the material production but it's that in here especially in his analysis of religion that he's putting way too much emphasis on the material and there is a reason for that he's doing a more of an economic analysis but i think it, it it's blinded him a little bit and also created a blind spot because especially in that he didn't look to uh eastern christianity orthodoxy more because you know we developed very differently and we um had our own kind of aquinas except for uh in i forgot the saint's name but i thought i asked you what his name was i write it down <laughs> yeah i know um but we had our own kind of Aquinas, but the, the separate was is that we rejected um the idea of applying reason to faith and that was our big split in our development um, from Catholicism was that we didn't want to apply secular things to faith, um, but we can't apply faith to secular issues. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to, I don't, I, I put this, uh, I don't ask you orthodoxy wise. How did you think um, based on the, when we said about how Catholic stuff develops economic wise, how did orthodoxy you saying affect time preference wise and development wise in different countries? How orthodoxy affected? Like we talk about Catholic, they have parts. Can you touch orthodoxy? How can you tell me kind of how orthodoxy affected economic growth in different areas? Or so I think orthodoxy actually, um, if we're going to talk about it in the issue of clergy, kind of insulated itself from the problem that uh, happened with Catholicism um, in that because our clergy could marry um, and even some monastics can marry mm -hmm. um, though that doesn't happen very often. Do we have, that is a lower time preference because as we know, having kids and getting married lowers time preference. Those are things that we know. Um, this is actually one of the things that got Hoppe a, a lot <laughs> yeah, of fire at university that. of Las Vegas is when he was yeah. explaining that, um, homosexuals have a naturally higher time preference because they cannot have their own biological children. Um, and so I think orthodoxy did a lot of that, uh, insulated itself from that, but also plus, I mean, uh, if you look at Greece and Russia and a lot of Eastern countries, their entire development, uh, was because of orthodoxy because orthodoxy was so ingrained into the cultures, the lives, and even the governments. Um, and uh, in, in all those countries until specific events. So with Russia, it was the October revolution and the martyrdom of Tsar Nicholas and his family. 
and you know that cut orthodoxy off and i would say actually that's a, a one of the contributing reasons for why russia did so poorly is it lost a lot of this no- transfer of knowledge in these institutions in, that that had an orthodoxy for growth and for um the division of labor to really flourish because it just cut itself off from one of its most important institutions for doing so. Well, and I will end. We only covered five chapters. Uh, let me ask you guys, do you guys want to do a part two next week or do you want to continue? Um, I'm fine with doing either. I think, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's up to whether or not you want uh, the viewers want to watch a, two hour long video or two hour long videos. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe the last five are shorter. Maybe we could do it in like 30, but yeah, it's up to you. Caleb. I'm going to say let's, let's power through. Let's power right. through and get the, the, the next one. Yeah, you cause... need your Elden ring break. You know? yeah, well, <laughs> the game, the game, literally the game downloaded. And I made my character. And I saw it. And I was like, I got to stop. I, I, I beat the first, I died to the first, but I beat the second boss and I'm like actually ready to play. And it's, it's calling my name. Um, okay, production of law and order. Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Does anyone have anything you want to add to that last chapter before we move on? Uh, yeah, one tiny thing, and I'll just do it briefly because it could get controversial. Um, it was interesting. The like basically success and like linking it to IQ, but it's not directly mm-hmm. linked to IQ because there can be like anomalies, and Hoppe uh, like attributes that to ideology. So you could have like a people that are overall very smart, but if they're following an ideology that's not good for material well-being, then they're not going to be Or a really smart and they're in yeah. a community full of people who follow the ideology. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, so I think China, like, was his example of, like, an anomaly where they have a very high IQ, yet a very low GDP per person. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have kind of thought about, like, what is it that in the ideology that lets these, like, super, like, authoritarian regimes, like, stay in power for so long? So yeah. it's interesting to think about. Yeah, I think it. I need oh, to read more Confucianism and all that kind of stuff because, like, the earliest anarchist from China, and so it's kind of weird to see like the earliest anarchist and then originating China Taoism, and then compared to what China is government government wise, it's always very counter to that. And I think it's honestly yeah. because that first guy would not take a job in government. Like they offered him, they offered him a job to come work in government, and matter the early Chinese government had an anarchist as the, as the head advisor, he said <laughs> no, and he wouldn't get involved. And now we look at China. China has been downhill going terrible and so um anyone anarchist listening you should be involved in these kind of hierarchies in the elites because you actually make a difference yeah i wanted to add on quickly since you brought that up because i thought it was um a good point and something i was thinking about is that that yeah like iq can high iqs and high average iq can help really bring a nation and increase growth but hoppa does a good job in saying that, that it's only one piece of the puzzle and the more important part of the puzzle is the, the the guiding ideology and that we can see that with china um we can see that with russia actually in too um and also just i think a counter like a, a reverse of it is that low iqs and high production uh because of the ideology uh, would a good example would be um uh sorry would be um, South Africa in uh, under British rule because it had a very low average IQ, or um, actually better, 
better yet, Australia. Australia had a has a very or had a very low average IQ um, in its inception, and yet it saw such a massive growth because of the ideology dominating it, which was a more liberal, um, at least when it comes to markets, liberal ideology and in, in, in a respect for property rights, um, especially over the tribes that ruled uh, Australia beforehand. Hmm. Very interesting. He, he didn't touch at all on um, India. What's the word? Is it um, Hinduism? Is that the one in India? I always get Hinduism. Yes, Hinduism. Did he touch it all on, uh, on Hinduism? I don't kind of remember if he did. I don't think I don't think he did, which was interesting considering it's one of the largest did. religions. Let me, but let me see. Actually, his um, be... who's that? I know there's an Austrian economist from <laughs> India who, who pops up on a Mises Institute so like once in a while. Anybody know his name? Oh yeah, he did. He did actually talk about it. But I have a quote. It says, "I will begin with one of the religions that is comparatively bad when it comes to capital accumulation." intentiveness and so forth and that is hinduism hinduism is characterized as far as economic doctrines by explicit taboos against certain resources Mm, yes that's a good point that is a i remember james burnham wrote about how um india could solve all of its problems if they started killing cows (laughs) and that uh was a that got a lot of pushback in india like there was like newspaper would say mr burnham wants to kill our our icons or something like that i can't remember the exact phrasing of it um but it's, I think that's an interesting point. But like when you have religion that value certain, certain material goods like that to a point where not not in use, but in just like in protection of them, that's going to do me a major effect, major effect on economic growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And if anyone, I think is that if we're better in this chapter, we're going to move on. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can move on. Got too. it. And the next one is production of law and order. I really have nothing to add to this one. So if you guys just want to go right ahead and take it. Uh, the I'll just give like a a note i had because maybe Peyton can answer it is i mean hop is probably the first like author i've read to have like a positive view of like the feudal system kind of like that was kind of new to me when i started reading hoppa um so that was interesting to see and uh, i thought it was interesting i'd want to read more about it he said it largely consisted of contractual relationships between landlords and tenant farmers um so almost like uh like I mean, Hoppe would view it as like proto private law society, like the closest thing we we had to it, and that um, like land tenants were like had obligations to their prince, and then princes could have obligations to like bigger land ownerships. But it was kind of like a a, a decentralized web of hierarchies. So that's just interesting mm-hmm. to think about. And that was like defensive alliances, and I mean, back then we didn't. I mean, there were still a lot of wars but they were less of total wars a lot of the time um, yeah um so i i actually have a lot to say on on this one yes, uh, <laughs> because my area of study is law and um you know i i studied my concentration for my major is actually law in institutions and i very much agree with hoppa's analysis of that Really, feudal systems were these proto um, anarcho capitalist, proto private law societies because they were a very contractual relationship. Um, if you were a serf, um, you actually did agree to certain terms. And if you did not agree to those terms, you would go and seek another lord. Um, or, or leave the land and, and move to another lord's territory um, 
because you didn't agree to the terms or, or you didn't um, you didn't like the new terms of whoever was the new lord um, because it was a very, you know, dynasty kind of thing. But we also did see wars, you know, but these wars were very much seen as disputes between lords mm-hmm. and ones where um, most people did not get involved in them. Um, most people were completely unaffected. In fact, most people did not even know these wars ever happened uh, <laughs> at the time. You could you you could like go to a, a town and be like, um, who's this is Lord uh, Farquad's territory, right? And it was like, oh no, actually, in a, a war just happened, and it's now Lord. Um, Tybalt's, you know, uh, territory now. And that would happen a lot. People's, uh, um, I think he mentions this in either in this book or in another book uh, about Italian, the Italian city states, which is a further development of that in which, you know, your who was ruling you was constantly changing because of either, um, contracts were changing there was new engagements um citizens no longer agreed to these rules and or the rules changed and the citizens disagreed so they moved under the territory of another and i find it really interesting because it is literally just a market for law in these early societies it was a market for governorship and um it worked really well you know there is the narrative in and this goes back to kind of ideology and stuff there is the narrative in the education field that this was like a horrible time in human history we lost so much um knowledge and we declined we went backwards in technological development but none of that's true the reason we call the dark ages the dark ages is because we have very little um like paper record records of what happened but we had a lot of oral records so passed down through monastic orders particularly of what happened during this time and that's where most of our knowledge comes from is these passed on oral traditions and really the standard of living was not horrible and and at, in fact you know most serfs had complete lay of the land they were doing things that they their lord never even knew about because their land was just so big and they were just kind of um, allowed to experiment and, and do things that they couldn't do in these more centralized um, empires and kingdoms around them. And that really the feudal system uh, was, I'm not going to say it was better standard of livings now. No, obviously not because the, the, the standard of living is actually higher now, but it was not because of feudal systems that it was lower. It was the development of technology. Yeah. Technology gets better. Uh, your life gets better. And I would say the development of technology has been in the spite of our changing governance, not because of it. And mm-hmm. uh, I think Hoppe does a good job in establishing that too um, in this chapter, particularly. And um, that even further. So feudalism was a, a division of labor amongst governance and saying like you so with kings especially in monarchies they would say you're the best lord for ruling over this territory and you're the best lord for ruling over this territory and basically created a, a division of labor for governance of a region too um mm-hmm. which goes on to the development of a 
<clears throat> development of uh, the division of labor and civilization in general. Yeah, that's interesting. And then he like later in the chapter, he goes on to kind of like extrapolate this to the present with like insurance companies and yes. the whole thing. Of course, very very libertarian. The whole insurance companies running the world. Um, funny. Well, I want to point out the point about you mentioned about the, the war and stuff and total war. Um, it's what's interesting to me is like how how much worse war has gone, and it's not to do like technology, but it's to like who who are targeting. Um, if anybody want to read more about that, Eric Vaughn could do Eric Vaughn could do like I didn't ever say his name. Eric Vaughn something Laden um has a great piece, great piece called Monarchy and War, and it's in Hopper's um Myths of National Protection. I think that's the one. Um, Myth of National Events. Yeah, Events, yeah uh, it's a great one. I'm yeah, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because um I did want to expand actually on that. So why we didn't see total war and why wars were less catastrophic, and it was because <laughs> the results of war were directly tied to the those waging war so nowadays democratic politicians have very little consequence when it comes to war especially with the wars that america wages because all the destruction happens you know continents away and miles and miles of sea and away you know and you know because they're of the higher class they're sons aren't going to be drafted they can get them out of the draft and so they have very little personal consequence to what happens but in feudalism and monarchy absolutely not because mm -hmm. the value of your estate would often decline in war um if the war became catastrophic or totaled um and you really 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 did not want to destroy territories of rivaling feudal lords because that would become your territory if you won. And then you would be stuck with all the debt and the costs to um, repair that, the, the, the institutions that were destroyed and the buildings that were destroyed. And so there was very much an incentive against total war and making sure that war was separated from really the daily lives of the productive um, actors, that being like serfs and farms and all that. And that war would take, far far away from that and so you very you saw very few civilian casualties even in the most costly feudal wars and monarchical wars of the time mm -hmm. uh civilian, civilian casualty rates were far lower than modern wars and modern warfare yeah. in wars between democratic states yeah. Um, yeah. And, like i think passports were created so that civilians could just go visit other countries while yes. the countries are at war so like stuff that. like wow. that is pretty crazy. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, back then it's like people weren't so tied to like a nation or like a collective, um, which is helpful. I had this post on on Twitter that for some reason blew up a bit, like down like criticizing economic sanctions on Russia and all the comments from like like I don't know like boomer conservatives are like, oh no, the Russian people decided to go to war, therefore we're gonna like crush them all, and I'm like. Yeah, I, I'm sad That's that I kind of used to think like that in like collective. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, before we started recording, I put out a tweet. Um, there was a Rassman poll uh, that broke down uh, voters' support for U.S. military intervention in Europe if a war, if a full-on war breaks out, and 
the lower the income of the person, the less likely they were to support it. And that's for a very obvious reason. If you're a lower income, you're more likely to be drafted. You're more likely to have someone in the military versus higher income people. You're also more insulated from the costs of that. So, you know, obviously gas prices are going to rise because of our policies. They're already rising if you look at them. Um, and, you know, the cost of goods are going to rise in general, which was another reason that um, feudal lords in, in monarchs were more um, less likely to both wage war and wage costly war because mm-hmm. they were not insulated from these prices. Even though they were rich, they still had to purchase from other feudal territories. They still had to purchase things and that's because the taxing the taxes were their money it was their money that would they were producing it was their production mm-hmm. it wasn't just this arbitrary it's the nation's money it's the people's <laughs> money or you know whatever it was it was your money that you were spending to do this mm-hmm. and so they were not insulated from costs and the the, the purchase of goods and furthermore, um, it brings up a good point of uh, how also f- under feudal lords, in, in, it was much easier to get rid of your ruler mm-hmm. because you can appeal to another ruler or um, it's easier to start rebellions, revolutions, all these things because the people are more conscious. They recognize that they're not a part of the government and that this is a separate entity from them. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and they don't think that. Oh, I can just vote my way out of this. Or I am mm-hmm. the government, so rebelling mm-hmm. against the government would be, you know, pointless because I'd be rebelling against mm-hmm. myself. These mindsets did not exist. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, one of the points. Uh, <clears throat> this is not point Hopper makes in this lecture. I don't think I don't, this is the this is the only. I I, I want to skip one lecture. That was this one. Um, Eric von then makes a point about like propaganda. And wars under democracies, they have to convince people to support the war, and so they can prevent rebellion, to justify sending sons and daughters, to have a lot of propaganda in the war. And um, he makes he tells a story about how apparently the French government in World War One, when was World War Two, World War One, had propaganda that, that German soldiers stink worse than French dead soldiers when dead. That German soldiers smelled worse than French soldiers. The dead Germans smelled worse than French soldiers. And other stupid kind of propaganda like that. That when World War II happened, they said, hey, the, the massacre in the zoos and the Holocaust, no one believed. The French didn't believe it. The French yeah. did not, a lot of French people did not believe the Holocaust was happening. A lot of other, other things were being said because they propagandized and lied so much during. And you know what he's, like, he said to my knowledge, I don't know about a lot of stories about the governments and a feudal and monarchy size propagandizing their populace and the serfs under that system because that really wasn't. They have they didn't probably, like you said earlier, they have the same level of role involvement in the wars between you know the elites. The lords. Yep. Pro- propaganda was also very difficult for two reasons. Um, first, there wasn't it was harder to reach the average surf mm-hmm. um, because one they can't read, two there isn't a lot of mass communication technology. Um, the only communications were person to person. Um, or writing letters. Um, and so it was far harder to get people on board for things or to, to manipulate them because of that. Um, and then also the second reason was because uh, there wasn't as much of a need of it. Mm-hmm. So people would support wars 
um, if they thought that the the Lord was going to prevail, if they were going to win, and there was a benefit to come. And a lot of serfs liked when wars were won or when they were uh, waged because they would ex- they would be have more land to to use they would have more land to expand on and um, people often got bigger homes they got more farmland they got a greater area to experiment with and so in that way if feudalism was or the people of feudalism were kind of pro-war but that's because they were insulated from the effects of it for the most part um, the only effect that they ever saw was, they had a new lord <laughs> that that was it and um if most of the time serfs didn't really care unless they were being taxed at heavy rates or um their lord was waging total war so i think i'm gonna I think we're gonna skip the chapter on state war and imperialism because we kind of just covered a lot i feel like um yeah so i know yeah. these two more chapters uh next chapter partisan Partisanism and the origin of the state. Yeah. So this is a really good chapter because um, so ever since Mises U, um, after listening to Ryan making in personal conversation with him and then also his lectures, um, I have stopped kind of using th- saying the state and saying the modern state. And Hoppe does a good job in this too. I don't think he uses the term modern state, but in saying that, you know, there were states. There's always been states and there kind of always kind of will be um, because, you know, you can rationalize it that even a private law society, that's a state. Or, um, But the difference being in that the modern state became um, an entity that was very detached from personal and private connections. It became one that uh, had this very much this thought of there is a gr- the government is greater than me and, and, and I'm a member of the government because I vote and I'm a citizen and stuff like that. And, and it really changed and flipped and changed what it meant to be a state. So in that sense, we're still very, we are anti-state. That is correct. But the, the difference is, is that it, is this new more modern interpretation of what the state is and i think hoppe does a good job of talking about that and how the modern state is a paras is more of a parasitic organism than other states because it it does not produce itself it only takes from the production of others so like in feudal feudal systems and even the roman empire they would produce goods. They would pr- actually produce things and create things. I mean, the Roman Empire created aqueducts. It created these things and did real infrastructure projects that came out of their own money, not taxation. Came out of money they earned and from from selling and, and engaging in production. And the same thing with feudal lords. And, and they would sell land. They would sell goods and all these kind of things that were their own personal money. But then with democracy, the modern state, liberalism, all these other things, uh, the state became detached and that taxation became the primary source of income for states or governments. And, and that changed them from production to parasitism. And he does a really good job of explaining that and talking about how, you know, um, 
the states went from something that was semi-voluntary to something that was not voluntary at all and really a parasitic relationship on yeah. um, productive actors. One thing that uh, like stood out to me was kind of the idea that liberalism, like in the terms of like markets, um, is like so successful it leads to its own downfall because once a society gets rich enough, then there's a large enough incentive for a group of people to come and exploit because the parasitic class can, all, can only ever be a small percent of the productive class. Um, so it's like there's no reason to rule over a people or exploit people if they don't have resources for you to take. And then the other interesting thing I got from this chapter other than that um, was the he explains the process of going from like semi-voluntary like monarchical systems to like absolute rule by one monarch. And it's like and I'll, I have a quote, it says the decisive step that he must take in order to transform his position into the position of a state would be the following. The king at one point would have to say, from now on, you must come to me whenever you have a conflict with somebody else. You can no longer go to anybody else for conflict resolution. And it says, up to this point, you chose me voluntarily to be the judge. Now I take away this possibility from you. Um, which, I mean, kind of goes with the Hoppe Rothbard definition of the state where it's the coercive monopoly on justice and stuff so like before people would choose your lord based on like who's going to defend you and who will give you the best system of life whereas uh it turned to you can only come to me yeah yeah i you know i think that's also a very good point because um something we saw with feudal systems monarchical systems is that um you could go somewhere else if you didn't like if you so if you didn't like the decision of a certain judge you could go to another judge or another lord and for for conflict resolution and say hey i don't think this was correct and you know um and also that's that was the role the king played in most feudal societies so he would dis solve disputes between lords um and he would be the arbitrator basically for that and if uh, one lord was not satisfied with the outcome if he did not arbitrate this outcome well well that lord would betray the king and go to another king and you would see that a lot um with society was um when kings made bad decisions when lords made bad decisions uh, they lost power, they lost, and they were directly harmed by it. So they had an incentive to make good decisions because the consequences of making bad decisions were pretty catastrophic for them. Um, but you don't see the same thing with democratic politicians or, or democratic governments uh, because the consequences of their bad decisions, they're mostly insulated from because even if production decreases, um, they still can, they still get substance. As long as production happens, they are sustained. It doesn't matter if production keeps decreasing, decreasing. It's only when um, the parasitic class grows too big or there's basically just no production at all. Mm -hmm. And that's when, you know, the parasitic class either gets destroyed or it is replaced with a new one that will probably guide it in a, the right direction for a little while so production can build back up and then it falls back into it 
the same cycle. And Hoppe does a really good way of explaining that and, and touching on that uh, and the origins of that. And I, I thought it was really good that you brought up about liberalism because um, liberalism in the terms of markets and economics really does create its own destruction because of uh, allowing this parasitic class to develop because it makes life better. It makes it easier. So um, there's a movie called Idiocracy, which I don't know if you guys are aware of. One of my favorite movies. Pretty popular movie. So Idiocracy, it kind of says that, the you know, because of the advancements in technology, it has both de-incentivized people from having children, especially higher IQ people, um, but incentivized lower IQ to have people to have children and also keeps them alive. It kind of cuts off mm-hmm. the natural selection of um, the division of labor because at the end of the day, people are less li- likely to die from injuries. They'll live longer and all these other mm-hmm. things. And that in turn creates the decay. So I think we're kind of seeing that now where, you know, we've created all this prosperity and now this prosperity is backfiring it because it's creating higher time preferences and, and this it's incentivizing bad behavior and disincentivizing good behavior and getting rid of the consequences for bad behavior as well. Um, Even, even if it wasn't incentivizing bad behavior, you would still be seeing a lot of it because the consequences would be less and less and less. This is a point I made on a Adam, Adam Nutter's podcast a few days ago. Is that uh, one of the things the state has done is done as a state, but um, how to put this? It's it in modern medicine, modern medicine, that kind of stuff. You're less likely to die, die young, or die from a simple mistake. So you kind of have people are not people are not as safe as they should be, um, and the government itself has taken basically filled the gap in fame. Government is taking away people's responsibility for their own actions now. A lot of people have, like, if they fall back on the state, they have, um, the state is making people less responsible for their own actions by getting involved in like, welfare checks and safety nets and all that kind of stuff. So people are not as responsible for their life, their actions, or anything now. And even in the state government, people, a lot of people don't do charity work now because the government's got involved in not only regulating charity, but something, I listened to a guy about, um, a, a bad business practice and he said there's no way that that's actually happening because if it was happening the state would outlaw it <laughs> yeah um, and yeah, it's just the like moral people, hazard yeah it's like they got the government's got a lot of people that don't have a people don't play active consuming active roles when they consume or and um they don't want really to take an active role in the market hoping to uh, give it a bad big bad bad business practices so i'm i'm running off for two hours of sleep it's four hours of sleep and i'm a little exhausted here um Gosh. Yeah, we, we can probably get to the next chapters. Honestly, eight and nine, I don't have that many notes. We kind of discussed nine already. That was like on yeah. war and like mm-hmm. total war. Um, and does anybody have anything you want to add to monarchy or to monarchy to democracy? Or do you guys want to jump right to the strategy I, section? I have one small thing on monarchy to democracy um, in which I think Hoppe ex- touches on a little bit on how um democracy is a little more general than um people give it out to be so even um things that look like monarchies or or kind of like monarchies so like dictatorships and stuff uh are democratic in effect in in practice 
because they have a lot of the same incentives. Uh, because e- even a dictator, a dictator is still someone who detaches himself from the country as his state and views himself as a as a um, you know benevolent leader who is detached from the consequences of um, of, of his bad policies because he is parasitic as well. And so I think that is something that a lot of people don't talk about and, and should be talked about more because it's something that like people who are critical of Hoppe's ideas hit him on is like, Oh, well, look, we have these dictatorships or monarchies that are, you know, behaving just as badly as democracies. And that is because in effect, they are democracies. They have the same views as democracies in terms of governance and in practice. So. Sam, you got anything you want to add? Um, not that much, honestly. Um, I think that was a good system. The notes I have is kind of similar to the whole process of, uh, from like a prince transition to a king, like of ultimate authority, and then Hoppe goes through the whole story of like the intellectual class that mm. the king uses for support. Eventually, turns against him uh, to like form what we think of as the modern state. So that was just interesting. Yeah. But that's it. Okay, last chapter. Uh, strategy, success, in privatization, and the pros- prospects of liberty. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if anyone wants to really hear some Hoppus strategy stuff, um, what must be done is a lecture he gave. And I think it's a pamphlet now, a sort of book on Mises Institute. And uh, I was, I talked about that with um, I came up with some, some Iris channel on YouTube a while ago. I'll put it in the link in the description. Um, what do you guys think of this chapter? So, this is probably my favorite chapter and the reason why it's my favorite chapter is because i put a lot of emphasis on strategy i think strategy is really really important i think it's something that libertarians don't talk about enough so libertarians we're really really good about giving our policy prescriptions we're really really good about giving the theoretical thing of why we believe this and the ethics of it um, and we have thousands, I would say, probably at this point, books on the subject. What we don't have a lot about is how do we actually achieve this? Mm-hmm. How do we actually put this into thing? Of those, I could probably list them all in um, you know about ten minutes, maybe ten minutes or less. Um, and so I'm really appreciative of whenever we get these and when it's good. And it is very mm-hmm. good here because Hoppe talks a lot about uh, – it, it is a lot like his um, pamphlet, What Must Be Done, and talking about secession, privatization, and the strategy of actually ac- uh, accomplishing things because really our strategy should be um, decentralization – radical decentralization decentralize as much as we can um our institutions because that keeps them from from, it's harder to subvert a decentralized institution than a centralized one Mm -hmm. and um because there's a lot more to 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 subvert so uh an example i give of this and you might not like it as much because you're catholic is (laughs) the 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 papacy versus the orthodox um organization of clergy now before we go forward remember this i'm allowed to debate this topic you're not allowed to debate this topic so true yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna avoid going into debating it but so the papacy 
you have the Pope. He's the supreme authority. Um, so that's one person you could subvert. Uh, in orthodoxy, our supreme um, clergy members are our patriarchs. We have multiple patriarchs. We have a council of patriarchs. Every um, orthodox sect, if you want to call them, they're not different enough to be sects, really, in my opinion. And we're in communion with all other orthodox, except for, I think, one brand of orthodox, and I forgot the name of it. But each one has its own patriarch. And then below that, there's metropolitans. And then below that, there's archbishops. And mm -hmm. below that and that. And it's very decentralized and it's harder to subvert. And that's why I think um, in a lot of ways, orthodoxy has been able to stay as consistent as it has um, while you've seen changes in the Catholic church. And this is not to knock Catholicism. No, I'm a, I'm a hundred percent agreement with you on this. Like yeah. I was, I was, I was a bit more uh, decentralized. Like my politically speaking, uh, like politically, not, not like po politically speaking, like accent wise, but like how things are organized. Uh, orthodoxy is much like again, I, I'm Catholic. I think it's true. I wish orthodoxy. I wish they could be orthodox. Was like, for how to put this? Everything about orthodoxy, I like the structure of it all. I wish it was, in my opinion, true. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't agree <laughs> with the theology of it. And, yeah. And, uh, I, you know the structure of it. I'm a hundred percent behind. So know? yeah. So I want. I want to. I want to specify. Do not become orthodox because you know we have a decentralized <laughs> clergy please yes. don't do that um okay. because that is not a reason to become orthodox at all and trust me you will very much regret your decision um and this is coming from somebody who is orthodox saying this and but you know I, that, that is just an example of it and hoppa really stresses how important it is to be subversion proof to be pro you know you're not going to be 100% subversion proof because that's impossible. There are always going to be bad actors and there are always going to be grifters and they're always going to get into your movement somehow. But, you know, what we can do is build institutions that are decentralized in which a bad actor isn't going to mean too much, you know. Um, and he applies that a lot to the political process and how important it is to be working from the ground up in terms of starting at very much the local level and moving up state and then federal and it'll trickle up. It'll be yeah. trickle eco up economics <laughs> in terms of political strategy. Um, yeah, but yeah. I found it um, interesting. Like the whole, I, I mean, his whole, it is the whole what must be done strategy of kind of like taking over a local area and then like imposing new rules, like basically make it harder for outsiders to make change. Um, I mean, that's like preventing subversion. Like there's kind of the phenomenon that if you do too well and then people just flood in, then it just like that. I mean, I think that's even happening on this may happen on a small scale with places like Florida and Texas is if enough, if it does too well and enough people can just move in like there was that who was that was that mtg saying that there should be like a six month gap on when you can vote once you move to florida <laughs> or something like that, or georgia i forget who said that but um i mean that's kind of a hoppy an idea of like basically mm -hmm. like once you private like basically essentially you're just privatized a small town for all yeah. like all intents and purposes and then um the idea is like obviously ten thousand Liechtensteins. um yeah, I think I like how he focuses on having like a good character. Basically, he's like, you know, like, I think he kind of downplays not like 
the massacre, but like the people themselves of Waco, they're kind of like a bit like religious fanatics. So more people could like understand why the government would do something like that. But he's like, if we're just like respectable people that have done nothing bad to the people around us, we've like built relationships, like we're of high moral character, then you're almost like protected by public opinion. I mean, not entirely because of propaganda, but if enough people are willing to do that, then it's it's a lot. Like if you're too insulated and not enough like public and open with your with uh, with um, people and stuff like that, it's easy to be propaganda because no one really knows you. But if you're yeah, you no know, people mm-hmm. know who you are. You're a figure of the community. It's kind of like wait a minute, that guy's a racist. I had dinner with him. He's not a racist. Yeah, if like you in the public eye, natural elite, basically, yeah. kind of absolutely. I had no. I really. I don't think I had any disagreements with Hopper on reality. I was in a hundred percent agreement. I think there's one point he said that I disagreed with, but I can't remember what it was, so I'm not going to bring it up. I remember <laughs> I was listening to it. I'm like, I need to write that down so I can bring it up later. And I, I didn't, and so, um, yeah. If I remember it later, I'll put, I'll put a description in here. If somebody probably disagree with, I can find it, but I'm probably not going to do that. Um, anything you want to add about the overall book? Before I have, a, I, have a, I have a few more questions I want to wrap it up with. Before we do that, any, any more? Anything you want to add? add? Um. I think the last thing I want to add is uh, buy the book. <laughs> yeah. Buy the book. Support Mises. Um, Link Mises, in the description. Mises Institute is kind enough to give it out for free. Buy it anyways. Buy it anyways. You'll be supporting the Mises Institute. With is if you're going to support any organization, any libertarian organization, the Mises Institute should be at the top of your list. And everything else down in the the Mingarian, um, you know, uh, scale preference of goods, <laughs> Mises Institute first one. So, yeah, I I bought the I got I bought the book, got one of the uh, donation ones. We donated. I gave it to a friend of mine, and so I'm like, okay, I got my copy. I got the hardcover. But I donated the, the the paperback to a friend who still I think hasn't read it yet. He also he's also he's, he's a monarchist who has never read Hopper. Interesting. <laughs> he, 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 he completely skipped libertarianism. He went from like Republican to monarchist and never <laughs> really read Hopper. I'm like, wait, he be the monarchist. I just assumed he read Hopper and lost part of stuff. No, nope, not at all. And so, um, he's a great dude. So, last two questions I have. Where you guys have read some Hopper books? Uh, where do you rank this Hopper book as a, on, on books you've read? I put it up to pretty high actually. Like, I put it, I think, I think number two because I it kind of covers a lot of things and I was really, really enjoyed it. I don't think it's better than Mark got the favorite, but it's definitely up there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was not expecting to be ranking it, um, <laughs> but just based off of what I've read, I'm actually going to probably put it in the middle of mm. what I read. So number one being democracy, the God that failed and the lowest one probably being, um, <laughs> I I, I I can't even think of one because I think my brain is like lowest Hoppa. Those don't those don't yeah. those two words can't go together. Um, but I think I'm gonna have to say is lowest one is probably um, the Great Fiction. Mm-hmm. Or no no sorry I'm gonna say actually um, uh, pro- private property or Private production defense? No, 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 or no. The no. economics and ethics of private property. No, 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 no. It's it's his equivalent of economy, man, and state, basically. So like you had human action and man economy. Uh, isn't it? Is it like a theory of socialism, capitalism? No, no, no. It's hmm. 
It's his. It, it's basically his comprehensive econ textbook. I think that I, I know what we're talking about. Do I yeah. even know what that is. I don't know. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember the title for whatever reason. I'd put you know it this book somewhere in the middle, probably mm-hmm. more towards the higher end because it's a general book that goes in depth enough. I think, but mm-hmm. that generality loses a lot. So yeah. Hoppe is really good when he gets into specifics, and Democracy: The God That Failed is ve- is pretty general. But it's very specific. It's very much focused on the the political philosophy under an economic lens, though. But still, the political philosophy and the development of government in the mm-hmm. state. Um, and then below that is the myth of, of national defense for me. Because mm. that one is very specific, too. And then below that, getting libertarianism right, what must be done... These are all very specific. So I think Hoppe's always at his best when he's more specific. Mm-hmm. And um, his the, his worst books are, uh, you know, the more general he gets. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, they're not books per se. They're collections yeah, yeah. of essays. So if they're not focused, it's he wasn't sitting down to write one exactly. book, yeah. kind yeah. of. So, I mean, it makes sense that, like, his focus book is... is at the top of your list i think it would be like my my third favorite i mean democracy's my favorite um i think my second favorite i need to reread it again is the economics and ethics of private property that is a good um, one i mean it's That's basically like the like... ethics of liberty but with like argumentation ethics and all that yeah. so that's a good one i think this is my favorite uh compilation of his essays i really enjoyed like i i don't really think about like like early history that much but just like early like primitive development was interesting mm-hmm. to read about with the theoretical backdrop not just like here's yeah. the facts of when cavemen developed mm-hmm. whatever um and then like after that would probably be i mean i like a lot of his other essays like like getting libertarianism right is technically a co- collection of essays same with great fiction um, yeah so yeah I, i'd say it's like upper yeah upper tier for mm-hmm. me I think I put it in like probably third place, top top three, top three for sure. Um, here's the next question: Is it? I would say because like I said earlier, it's a good introduction to Hopper's work. Who, at what point would you give this to someone? I, I wouldn't give this to a public, a normal Republican. I would think I would at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so at what point, if, if you write plenty of friend, at what book? Would you give, at what point would you give them this book? Like, if you recommend three books for someone to read, at what point do you start recommending like this one specifically? I guess it was. It depends where they start. I've asked like Tho and like Jared, like, what book do I give to hop a pill someone? And it's always getting libertarianism right, which I think makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've given that to some of my uh, cons- like very conservative friends, and I, I think they like like some of it um, at least. Um, yeah, it is interesting. This it's, it's, this book is kind of like a bit of everything. I, maybe it could be like a primer for Democracy, the God That Failed, because mm-hmm. it, it includes like sprinkles of everything. So you're not just like reading like five chapters on why the system you've thought is the only way we can operate is like a sham. <laughs> like <laughs> at least this way, you're kind of like eased into it. And then you get some like interesting like economic framework. So I think it, yeah, I, I would. Maybe like even the second second thing you give them from Hoppe, like it's it's kind of like a overview of his thought process, and it also includes why he thinks the way he does. 
Because if you just start with democracy <laughs> without like a, a framework of like either anarcho-capitalism or at least like minarchism, classical liberalism, I, I think it would some of it wouldn't stick well. Um, like I, I, I the first time I read Democracy, I only agreed with like I don't know seventy percent of it. Like it made me really think, mm -hmm. but I, I I had to reread it before I like got back to it and was like, oh yeah, this is a great book. That same thing happened with me with Anatomy of the State, though. That was, like, the first thing I read from Rothbard because it was such a short book. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, this is weird. After I'd only known, like, Mises and Milton Friedman. So, Yeah, so I'm actually really glad you asked this because I'm working on a Substack article that is a reading list that puts books into intro, um, advance, and then the expert. And then also, uh, well, I want to have a section on just, like, this type of person, give them this books and to red pill them and give them, you know. Um, so I would say it, there's a two, my answer is kind of twofold. First, mm -hmm. I would say this is that this might actually be a book I, a, a first hop of book I would give to people hmm. um, because I think it, it's a good overview and then um, kind of gauge what they found most interesting and target the rest mm -hmm. of my hopper recommendations off of that. Um, so if they liked a lot of the more of the political theory stuff, give them democracy. If they like the stuff about war and, and, and stuff like that, give them myth of national defense. If they like the economic stuff and the development stuff, give them ethics of uh, private property and um, stuff like that. Uh, but also, I think if I'm going to target people too, though, something I'm going to do is they're already pretty right wing. Definitely going to give them this book. They're left wing, yeah. no, I'm not gonna give them. Well, what book would of Hoppe would you give to a left winger? Like, how would you? I would. Do so that? I don't think I would. I, I would. Mean, you yeah. can like maybe like do like a transition of like Mises or something, but so it, to the first book I would give to a left winger from Hoppe if I was gonna give one at all, which I think there are some cases you would. Myth of National Defense, mm. because left wingers even when they're not fully anti-war are sympathetic to it. And that book would create a really good like yeah. mindset and kind of have them connect what they think about war and what they think about the military to the rest of government, because mm -hmm. Hoppe does a really good job about doing that. That's and it, it would open the floodgates for them. Now, not every, not every left winger is going to respond to it because just by proxy of being on the left at all, you're kind of insulated from this kind of yeah. thinking um, just naturally as someone who was a left winger <laughs> and, and knows their mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like yeah. you just find the thing that like, it seems to be like the people thing topic that people care about. They generally are not satisfied with the government on. So you kind of just have to like ease them in with that topic. Like, like my like my mom's uh like a, a left wing person, but she like is into like alternative nutrition stuff. So mm. I'm just like, see, look how bad the FDA is, and then it's just like <laughs> down the rabbit hole you go, kind of. Nice. Yeah, you you really when you recommend books to people, you want to really target it to yeah. um what they care about, mm. and um because if you can convince them of you that your position is correct. On the issue they care about most, everything else will trickle down. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. um, <laughs> a good example of this: I have a friend who's uh, 
far more he's far more on the authoritarian side of the right wing <laughs> and he was able to convince his left wing friend to be um a full-on fascist in fact uh by all he did is he said fascism would solve the environmental problem fascism would <laughs> climate change and i mean like, it, yeah that makes sense, that makes was, sense. Uh, and, it, yeah. and he became a full-on right winger you know like in, in, in a fascist wow. himself and i was like Huh. <laughs> I guess wow. I, I'm I'm shocked. Yeah. People <laughs> people a... have these pet most people have one or two, maybe even three mm-hmm. political pet issues. And if you can convince them that your ideology will solve for this, everything mm-hmm. else trickles down. Mm-hmm. Everything trickles down, or you just get enough of them where the, your disagreements don't matter because yeah fundamentally they would put your regime if you want to call it in power they would see and in your policies would trickle down because you know their disagreements are probably going to be things that they don't care about as much they're on a lower they're on again bringing up the mingarian or um hierarchy of preferences it's going to be lower on that that hierarchy so they're going to care less yep okay last question uh, I, I wasn't asked, but I, we, we talked about recommending books to people. Um, a normie Republican, like a Boomercon normie Republican, what book would you recommend? It's not a hot, but a, what book in general would you recommend to them? So, normie Boomercon Republican. Mm-hmm. My answer is uh, against the left. Yeah. My answer is against the left by Lee Walker. Because I kind of get to Lee Walker, Hopper, Mises, Waspar, all in one. And it's a really, if you're on the right and you want to hate the left, this is the best way to hate. This is, a, this is the, the book for hating the left. Like it is a, it's a very easy read, very quick. Well, I think it's on 80 pages. But, uh, but yeah. You know what? Um, mine's going to be a bit of a weird one. Um, it's Romando's book on the right. Uh, I forgot the exact. Reclaiming title. the American right. Reclaiming the American right. Yes. Marcel's, Marcel right is coming on for this one. Yes. Great. Because be um, Marcel's the one who got me to read Reclaiming <laughs> the American right. Nice. But um, and the reason is, is because if you can redefine what it means to be right wing for them, if you can redefine what the right wing was, um. I think that'll trickle down and, and open them up to a the to the other positions and to the being no longer a boomer con and, and realizing mm-hmm. just like wait a minute the left has infected the right the 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 right that I am dedicating mm-hmm. myself to is actually just the left um, and is controlled opposition towards the left and so I think that's, that's a pretty good book too um, I think there's some other ones. <laughs> Too, that would be pretty good. Uh, what again, about a, have you read Vanishing Tradition by Paul Gottfried yet? Have you read I that know. at all? Pretty good. Basically, the entire book is about how neocons have infe- neocons aren't really right wing and affected the right and cancel a lot of the good people on the right. Like it's a uh, pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I book. think I think though you can't you can't um, go as hard into the neocon thing because these people yeah. don't even know that that term exists. <laughs> yeah, I'll they don't even know that, that there like, are different. Yeah, they don't even know that there's different right-wing ideologies. Yeah, I, I didn't until it's I, just I Republican. Yeah, yeah, that so you're just a Republican or you're not. Yeah, and uh, for me, I don't know. I mean, I guess it would depend what issue they care about. I mean, mm-hmm. I think against the left and getting libertarianism right are the two that I, have been recommended to me. Um, but 
like I'll give you an example. I like a conservative. Like you kind of like play to the advantage of like people of conservatives not liking Biden to like help them get in. Like so, one of my friends is now really concerned about inflation. He wasn't back in when money printers were going off in like March of 2020, but now that like Biden's in charge, now he's really concerned about inflation. So he's getting into like crypto and stuff. So I'm like, hey, you should read what has government done to our money? Like mm-hmm. something like that. Like it's an issue that they're now thinking about, and then they're more willing to mm-hmm. to uh, read. So if you can find if they, if they, if they're if they're critical of foreign policy, you could throw like Scott Horton or I don't know who else. Yeah. yeah. It's not right wing, but um, or if they're critical of monetary policy, you could go for like any of the monetary policy books. Got so it. just to connect it back to the book really quick, Please. because um, I think this comes back to Hoppe's strategy, too, is that you've got to start at a very decentralized level at the very lowest level and tailor when you recommend books, tailor it to the person. Mm-hmm. That is how you can be subversion proof. That is how you can get them. And um, a lot of libertarians ask them, ask constantly, what can I individually do as a libertarian to help? And it's very, very simple. Give books, give podcasts, give whatever, whatever their preferred format is. Um, my boss has a really good way of saying this, that in politics, you conform to the way that they want you to communicate with them and tailor your message, tailor what you're doing to their specific needs and their specific cares, and you'll get them. You'll get them on board. Everything else will come naturally or it won't matter the, the things you differ on okay. at the end of the day because in the result because the result is the same, especially with democratic systems because you don't vote. Uh, or at least our democratic system, you don't vote issue based, you vote for a person. And so, yeah. um, So if the best thing you can do is tailor to waking people up to their methods. So not just books, but videos, YouTube and um, Mm -hmm. all that. Cause that's, that's, I mean, what convinced me of libertarianism and Hoppe and a lot of other things, or at least got me into it at first was not books it was videos um libertarianism it was an interview of brian kaplan on dave rubin and for hoppa in this vein of libertarianism i saw um trudeau tom's video on democracy the god that failed and then that made me want to read the book and that's what got me into it is reading the book so i wouldn't even have been at the book if it wasn't for a video uh, which i suggest going and finding that video if you can, um, because that's a really good one to, if somebody doesn't want to read a book, give them the video. Yeah. They can listen to it and it explains the book very well and is very good at convincing people. It's convinced a few people I know giving them that video. So nice. Well, I think that's about it. Uh, you guys go ahead and give your plugs. What can people find you at? Uh, I'll go for sure. Um, so you can find me. Uh, you see my Twitter handle in the thing, but it's S uh, and my last name, Cartagena underscore BTC. Uh, that's I, I've written for Mises.org a bit. So that's just my name. Um, that's about it. Uh, I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, if I move anywhere, I'll post it there. So just see me on Twitter, I guess. Sounds good. So um, for me... 
Actually, if you just look up Repeal the 20th Century on Google, you will find my podcast. So uh, you'll find me, uh, my Spotify, my YouTube, all of those things. Um, so I'm on Spotify, YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and Substack. So uh, my Twitter is at Repeal the 20th. Um, Facebook, just look up Repeal the 20th Century and all other platforms. You can just look up Repeal the 20th Century and it should be one of the first results. Um, even if you just do it in Google, you'll find me there. Um, and if you want to look up um, my Mises stuff and my stuff at the Libertarian Institute, it's also on my Substack with links to those also. Or you can look up my name, Peyton Guzan. Uh, that last name is spelled G-O-U-Z-I-E-N because uh, you'll never get the spelling from just hearing it. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can look that up and you'll find those as well. So Wonderful, wonderful. So I got to do a few announcements myself for the podcast going forward, but I think you guys both are coming on. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yep. Okay, I'll see you guys later. Okay, guys, uh, thanks for listening. Great episode of uh, another episode of Face Living Practice. Really enjoyed the guest. Make sure you follow them. Um, Pocket's going on a little bit of a hiatus. We're going to do, I'm going to do about a three week, maybe four week break. When I come back, though, I think the first book would be uh, Managerial Revolution and then Reclaiming the American White. So that's the plan when I come back. Uh, still going to try to put some stuff out of Austro-Thomism. Probably going to do an episode with Popular Liberty on that as well. Um, but yeah, facing me practicing the book club, we're taking a bit of a hiatus because I need the time to actually read the book. So anyway, thanks for listening. Have a good night.